Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 15. For the word, if the Lord wills, under the title of a dispatch for the desperate. Mark 15, beginning in verse 25. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucify two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. A simple objective. It leaves an odd feeling to consider that words spoken now will echo into eternity. As if the ripples, but not the pond, extend beyond this earth. I have brought some gospel words this morning. And today I would cast them, Proverbs 20 and verse 5, into the deep waters of your hearts. May God grant that their echo will prove your delight and not your torment in the life to come. It leaves an odd feeling to consider that as surely as we sit here today, we will occupy another land together or apart soon. The weeds of Eden have already taken hold on our bodies and inevitably we will be choked on the same pitiless ever-creeping bitter herb that filled the throats of all of our fathers. I wonder if that claps our hearts with alarm this morning. But it should. Well, well, you're just an alarmist, some people would say. But that is not a Webster-friendly accusation. Because an alarmist tries to sound the alarm when no real danger exists. Or when the extent of danger doesn't match the fuss that's made about it. But I think I found the measure for the appropriate level of alarm in the book of Mark. He that believeth shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Well, sure, I mean, if you believe that, comes the response. I have a simple objective today. 
But I hope you will allow me some moments first to speak of our greatest hindrance. Just maybe, not one person in this building today has ever battled doubts as I have. I would like to think that none of you, nor none hearing this message, have ever battled unbelief as I have, but I doubt that's true. It seems likely to me that someone, perhaps someone here this morning in this room, has looked at the scene before us in the Bible and wondered, what is this? If it was more than just a man crucified like so many others were, then why? Unravel for me the deep enigma of Mark 8 verse 31, if you can. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed. What does that mean? Have those words never struck you as impossible to believe? Or that scene impossible to accept? Why must the Son of God suffer so? Well, of course, the answer is because God determined this is how salvation would be accomplished. But why? Why must Jesus suffer and be killed when it might have been another way? Maybe I read too much. Maybe Ezekiel Hopkins was right. He said it should be considered men of knowledge and education read more, they think more, they are brought into contact with a far wider circle of clashing sentiments. And often, for this very reason, they find it difficult to come to a fixed decision. Perhaps he's right. It does seem to me that the more we endeavor to justify faith, with the tools of reason and more study, the more objections there are to wrestle with. It's like a Greek hydra in the mind. Cut off one head and two more appear. But you're mistaken this morning if you think I want to discourage you. I don't want to quench tender, flickering faith. I'm only putting a voice to doubts that many people carry. And few people are willing to admit. They're too afraid to admit that these doubts live in their head at times in case even acknowledging their existence will banish us from God forever. I can relate to the feeling. Just maybe not one person in the audience today has ever battled doubts like I have. I would like to think that none of you have battled unbelief as I have, but I doubt that's true. I know some of you, and I know that's not true. And for that reason, whomever you are here today, listening next year, I want to be brave for you today. Because we desperately need to hear this gospel word. I want to look the very monsters in the face that so often threaten to tear me away from the cross. And I want you to see that hope does not lie in answering every question or crushing every doubt that comes into our minds. You know who you are this morning. And I want to tell you that Jesus doesn't need you to solve every theological equation or cipher every philosophical riddle in order to help you. I want to tell you that we have upset the proper order of things and we have hurt our own heads in doing so. Because we make faith to follow understanding while God has made understanding to follow faith. 
Believe and you shall know. Faith will let you see. It's not faith and reason, Mr. Aquinas, like they exist apart. Rather, it is reasoned faith unto faithful reason. This is the way it really works. Oh, I know the criticisms. I know the criticisms. It's a weak and childish mind, they say, that would accept these fantastical Bible stories of a Redeemer, especially one who couldn't even save himself, especially when he claimed to be God. I mean, isn't it rational to prove that God exists first before believing in a God-man Redeemer? You don't have to tell me how hot these arrows are and how very dangerous. But you felt some of them yourselves. But hear me this morning, weak believer, halting, hesitating unbeliever. Listen carefully now. All the smoke, all the scorn, the ridicule and anger of the world and of your own heart only disguises the fact that no objection that doubt can offer has ever or can ever positively prove the gospel is a lie. No man yet has proven God does not exist or the claims of Christ are not true. So let us take the sting out of doubt this morning. You take notice of this in your own heart and in the hatred of the lost. Unbelief can only ever say what it doesn't think can be. It can never say for sure what is. Can I say that again? Unbelief can only ever say, pay attention to this. Thank God for His grace. That he let me see this in my own struggles. Unbelief can only ever say what it doesn't think can be. It can never say for sure what is. Ludicrous replies unbelief. It's plainly evident that we exist. And that our reasons can arrive at plain truths about life apart from God. You can laugh at that response, my struggling friend. Which unbeliever can even tell what existence is or where it began or make coherent statements about the beingness of life? They cannot. Be not dismayed today by an inability to reason through every objection we face. We need to come to terms by grace with the impossibility of standing only on things that can be fully explained. Brother Gormley, you know what a philosophical magnanimity that statement is. We need to come to terms with the impossibility of standing only on things that can be fully explained. The disarming, disarming, disarming and alarming nature of all human existence is that while we know something about some important things, we know very little about most things. How dare the world come then on these arrogant and ignorant terms? How daring my unbelief really is Show me God and I will accept Christ. I say prove your own existence before you dare deny God's if you can. And if the mystery of the cross must be explained before it earns the right to your approval on that method, you better cease to breathe at once until you can quite explain why you should even have a wish to do so. I have no desire to burn up my time today laboring to answer every objection of every unbeliever in hopes of helping you embrace the scene before us in Mark. 
There is no end to objections. Because the natural understanding is the most whorish thing in the world, said Mr. Rutherford. Like the silkworm, it first makes a work of many threads and then lies fettered and entangled in that which came out of its own bowels. Please don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand me to mean that unbelief in all of its forms on the one hand and Christian faith on the other are on a level playing field. And since neither side can explain everything they're confronted with, then we are free to pick a side according to our preference. On the contrary, about the most urgent matters of life and death, the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ alone offer rational and joyful light for our souls. Nowhere, nowhere but in the Bible is a God revealed who so perfectly fits the best and most equitable ideas of a Creator. Nowhere but in the Word of God are we more accurately described or diagnosed. Nowhere but in the sayings of Scripture can all of our experiences and environments be more seamlessly woven together or explained. Nowhere but in the Gospel of Christ is a Savior found more perfectly displaying the most sublime virtues that we can conceive. Nowhere but in the person of Christ is a plain way opened to hope for burdened hearts. You may come to our scene today in Mark unbothered by the sharp questions of the atheist, of the skeptic, or the hedonist, unshaken by the demands of unbelief. Console yourself with more considerations too. If you haven't taken your philosophy hat off yet. Unbelief tells us that we cannot begin with God to argue for Christ. Nor with Christ to argue for Christianity. To begin and end with Him is to argue in a circle. To beg the question, they say. To which I say, Amen. In just the same way the unbeliever argues, but they do it from ignorance. So we do it on purpose, and here's why. Because we realize that if God is, then no argument can begin apart from Him, nor end outside of Him. Logic cannot arrive at Him from whom it came, unless it first began with Him. If He exists at all, you see, He cannot be only the conclusion of your argument, or He is no God at all. Oh, my unbelieving heart. My unbelieving heart. Quit looking into men's minds. There is no ultimate argument for Him. Only of Him. <laughs> Oh, what a mouthful. And I'm so much dumber than you, it only took me 20 years to get there. There is no ultimate argument for Him, only of Him. Yes, sir. He is the self-affirming argument that no more begs the question than the mirror does when it pleads for the existence of an original from the presence of a reflection. A circular argument, yes, not by virtue of weak presumption, but by virtue of the impossibility of traveling beyond its mighty object. There can be no wisdom or counsel against him, Proverbs 21 and 30, because there is no wisdom and counsel outside of him. He is the master syllogism of the universe. <laughs> In the person of Christ, the premises and grand conclusion all together, valid in its form and truthful in its claim. If God, then Christ. God, therefore Christ. <laughs> but I know I cannot convince your heart by schemes of logic. 
that the scene in Mark's gospel is all that Mark says it is. I know that for desperate souls it is not refined philosophy or finely tuned arguments that appeal to the heart. In the final tally, all of these lack the strong and steady, the warm and visceral pulse of life that plain gospel statements have and that real human souls crave. It is then my simple objective today to draw you up to Christ. Not by force of reason, complicated Bible studies, or exercises in formal logic, listen, but by the startling beauty of the unintended praise of pagan men. With all my heart, I hope a simple announcement will suffice to recommend Christ to any desperate soul as it has to mine. Careful now. I said desperate souls. Because it is to those that I speak this morning who, like myself, are desperate to find relief. You may well be in a desperate situation from which you need to be saved. And it's a chilling thought, brethren. It's a chilling thought. I have almost every Lord's Day we gather here. That if the formula that Christ laid out is true, many are called and few are chosen. Many, many, many will try to enter in and few will be saved. I wonder how many among us are deceived. You may well be in a desperate situation from which you need to be saved, but in which you feel no alarm and you rest in your cool carelessness. That is indeed a desperate situation. But to be desperate about your situation is another matter altogether and one that requires gospel comfort. Souls with a gospel desperation have gathered around this cross and have been helped. Won't you? Don't play the fool with the hourglass. Don't play the fool with the hourglass and hope by chance to iron out all your doubts before the last grain falls. It will never happen. Not for me and not for you. I know it is ludicrous that we would struggle so with simple faith, but oh, I bless God that our conundrum is one with which He is well acquainted. I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> I have a simple announcement. We are in a war. Every new day dawns on a very old battlefield. And every new soul is born into a contest for their very lives. Some become aware of this and some do not until it's too late. If you, if you have begun to waken to the urgency of the situation, you may find yourself searching, as I have, for a light. A word of direction that will carry you over the battlefield and into a safe and peaceful place at last. A favorable dispatch for the desperate. And God has sent one. God has sent one. And He sent it by several runners as well to ensure that you received it. It is the rule to dispatch two or three or four runners by different routes, said Sergeant McClintock. In 1918. So that one at least will be certain to arrive. But it wasn't done one day the sergeant said. And 600 men perished. 
when the word never got through. But my captain sent several runners and carried them all safely through to me to be sure that I got the message. And listen to what it says. Listen now. In verse 31, it's a simple announcement. He saved others. What a simple announcement. He saved others. This is what we need. We need to be saved. We need to be saved. And in this strange scene, the most unlikely witnesses with no possible desire to recommend this Jesus to my heart have stirred up my hopes nonetheless. If He saved others, then I know He can save me. I must go and ask Him. Acts 10.38 tells me He went about delivering others from all kinds of oppressions. I need that. I need that. Do you? Who can deliver themselves from the oppression of pain and sickness? Who hasn't found themselves weighed down days into months and more days again by this miserable, dying body? Hasn't found their spirits beaten down as their bodies stagger? pulling dark shades over all the windows of the soul and haven't longed for and wept for some man to carry them down into the healing waters. Some of us can tell you what the weariness of a 12-year issue of blood looks like from the inside. Gracious Lord, save us! Our bodies groan under the curse. We need to be saved. Has ignorance ever burdened you? No, No, not somebody else's. Yours. Yours. How about a message, Brother Jacob, on whether or not you're a Christian and here's the test. Has your ignorance ever burdened you? Stop sometime to reckon up how many evils, how much sadness is the offshoot of ignorance, if you can. It's the mother of mistake. The cause of trouble, of error and terror. Ignorance is the deformity of the soul. I think you're right, Mr. Brooks. It's hardly an exaggeration. But lest you think ignorance, hear me. Oh, hear me, please. We're all guilty of this. But lest you think ignorance is a somewhat harmless consequence of poor life choices, but hardly more awful than that, just consider some of its diseases. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, Paul confessed to Timothy. Why, Paul? Because I was ignorant. Because I was ignorant. I'm telling you, ignorance only needs a kiss. Ignorance only needs a kiss from opportunity to father the grossest sins. It fairly strains the heart to contemplate a world full of sadness, suffering, and violence directly flowing from ignorance. And our own families have been scarred forever by it. Right, brother. Has your ignorance ever burdened you? But ignorance were worth weeping over if only for this fact. Ignorance 
will make a person miss Christ. Oh, brethren, I'm worried about my people Israel. That they won't be saved, Paul confided. How so, Paul? Romans 10. Because they're going about to establish their own righteousness. And they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That's sad, Paul. Why are they doing that? Because they're ignorant. Because they're ignorant of God's righteousness. Oh, God of mercy, save us from ignorance. Save us from ignorance. Do you need to be saved from fear? I need to be saved from fear. It's bigger than me. I want to tell you fear is a predator. Fear is a constrictor. Fear is a hot hand over the mouth of a sprinter. Fear drives you in every direction with no direction at all. And fear can't be kept out by sleep either. It crosses freely the boundaries of waking into the places of dreaming and harasses the soul. Fear dries up the appetite, burns the color out of the body. It makes the eyes like frantic lunatics at shuttered windows. It's a common madness with uncommon terrors. Fear may be bold and vicious. Breaking out to show the world its power over you. Humiliating you while it wastes you. But fear can be obliging too. It can act politely. And let you appear composed while on the inside it devours your heart. Fear is one thing and another all at once. It can make you say things you shouldn't and tremble to say things you should. It can make you shrink from duty even while you speak of virtue. Fear will make some people appear more harmful than they are. Listen. Or... (laughs) More valuable. According as you wish. But all the most dreadful truth, the most dreadful truth is that fear fear can keep you close to religion, but out of heaven. Fear can keep you close to religion, but out of heaven at last. Afraid Afraid, afraid to trust all and everything to Christ. Fear will put a trembling religious person in hell. Afraid to trust Christ. Gracious shepherd, save us from fear. And from guilt. I think I have to agree with Mr. Rutherford. If you've never spent a sleepless night nursing the pain of guilt, you're lost. I used to think that was a hard and narrow statement. But I think I'll repeat it. If you've never spent a sleepless night nursing the pain of guilt, you're lost. Guilt is not ours only. Oh, it's our child, all right. It's our child, but it seeks employment from the devil. 
It's a traitorous and treacherous roommate. Guilt is oppressive. It can be an open sore on the face. Good deeds will be left off and religious duties undone for the sake of awkwardness. It's a hard, searching stare that shames our resolve into perfect stillness and withers the fruit of righteousness almost as they ripen. Guilt is a cauldron deep within the soul that parches our courage with its sulfurous fumes and makes even the pleasant things bitter to the taste. Just think of the songs cut short. Just think of the songs cut short. Of the vital sermons half ignored. Of the gospel opportunities wasted. Of the earnest prayers interrupted. When guilt reminded you the deeds of hypocrites are obnoxious to your God. Guilt doesn't care to prove if you really are a hypocrite. It's content to help you feel as though you are. Because it's a powerful, powerful lobbyist for hell. All the pain of guilt. Pain of guilt. It weaves a dreaded condemnation into a troubled imagination with the thorny vines of real transgressions. Save us, dear Lord, from the burden of guilt. It fairly crushes us. But oh Lord Jesus, oh Lord Jesus, what do we say of unbelief? This wretched cancer stains even our cries for help. Pity us, son of David. We seem to be all made up of unbelief. And it makes us desperate, oh God. Oh God, it makes us desperate. For the dread pronouncement you have made still stands. They could not enter in because of unbelief. Could more sobering words be uttered today? I'm asking if you're desperate to enter in. I am. And all that stands between us and the Father's house is all that's needed to shut us out of it forever. Unbelief. But everywhere I turn in my heart, I find it there. To the topmost floor I go and find it there. To the deepest cellars in my heart, untouched by the rays of direct sense and most remote from the clamor of Vanity Fair, and still, I find it there. It huddles in the corner. It leans on the mantelpiece. It pulls up a chair to have Congress with the members of my soul, an ambassador from the dark, a great leech upon the neck of resistance, a witch and an enchantress, as the preacher calls it. Sometimes it speaks softly and disarms the mind with the smoothness of its conversation. Just think, comes the sinister suggestion. Just think how odd and rigid and uninteresting the place would become if I were to move away. Secretly, you know that you are most comfortable with me here. Should I really go? Then sometimes, dreadful times, it roars and the timbers of the soul shake. This is my house, it says, and I shall never be moved. I have rights here by the laws of first possession. What powerful and persuasive arguments it offers. It's the loudest witness and the star counsel for the prosecution. 
and it's no respecter of persons. You look at our passage, verse 15, 24, 28, 29, 31. There are soldiers, kings, religious folks, social elite, criminals, and unnamed passers-by eaten up with unbelief. Blessed Lord Jesus, deliver us from unbelief. From unbelief. By the grace of God, don't allow the scene of the dying Jesus to quench your faith and discourage you from coming. By the grace of God, realize that not saving Himself was all that empowered Him to save others. Himself. (laughs) Himself. He cannot save, they said. And the world would take this insult as a proof that He cannot help you. If He is the King of Israel, they said, let Him come down from the cross. But on the contrary, warns Calvin, they ought not to embrace as King anyone who did not answer to the description given by the prophets. But Isaiah and Zechariah expressly represent Christ as devoid of comeliness, afflicted, condemned, accursed, half dead, poor and despised. Before he ascends the royal throne, in no other way could he be acknowledged to be the lawful king of Israel than by fulfilling what belonged to the Redeemer. In a word, he could not save himself in order that he could save others. There's a danger of our missing this. The hateful crowd couldn't see the Savior for the thorns. They couldn't see the king behind the blood and sweat. Apparently, seeing is not always believing. But just so we overlook the saved ones, we overlook the saved ones for the one who did not save himself. Sick of the devil's disease, says Mr. Trapp, they petulantly insult over our dying Savior with their satanical sarcasm, but their venomous jibe is profoundly true, notes Mr. McLaren, and goes right to the heart of the gospel. His will was fixed to obey the Father and to redeem His brethren, and therefore He must die and cannot deliver Himself. But the necessity and inability both depend upon His will. Hallelujah. In a word, He would not come down till He was taken down. Dear listener, we need to be saved. I don't know the secret counsels of God. I can't see the hidden workings of your hearts this morning. I've heard the words some of you have said to me, but I can't see your heart. Have you become desperate for deliverance from unbelief? Then read the dispatch from Mark again and rejoice. He saved others. Yes, hallelujah. He saved others. This is not fiction all made out of the carver's brain, as Mr. Coleridge expresses it. This is no rumor. Our situation is too urgent. Our desperation is palpable. We need solid and assuring news for victory. Prolonged warfare can only lead to innervation, said Mr. Sawyer, commenting on the art of war. Certain situations are debilitating, dangerous, even fatal, and must be scrupulously avoided. Every effort must be made to foster and maintain the proper attitude accordingly. All detrimental stimuli such as rumors must be prohibited. This is no rumor. 
to confront the specter of eternity. We need more than rumors. We need an authentic dispatch. Well, glad news. Glad news. It's been confirmed. He saved others. This is a glorious biographical statement. And if Mr. Lynch is fair in his estimation of biographies, surely we may cherish this as much as any. Biography, he argues, introduces us to some of our most agreeable and stimulating friendships. In actual life, you see your friend today and will see him again tomorrow or next year. But in the biography, you have your friend and all his experiences at once and ever. He is with you wholly and may be with you at any time. He lives for you and has already died for you to give finish to the meaning, fullness, and sanctity to the comfort of his days. He is mysteriously above you as well as before you by this fact that he has died. Could there be more fitting words? For our biographical statement, our dispatch for the desperate, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Here is an agreeable friend for needy people. Can I make a simple plea? He saved others. That is a simple announcement. And you need to be saved. Can I recommend this Jesus? It's true, Mr. Rutherford. We breathe out sin. We cast out a smell of hell when the wind bloweth on our field of weeds and thistles. Our soul is but a plot of wild corn. It is this sin from which we most need to be saved. But he was called Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. He has done it for others. Is this not enough encouragement to try his mercy for us? In your struggle for assurance, in the doldrums of doubt, you will never convince yourself that he has saved you. But cling to this, he has saved others. And venture everything on that. Bless you, dear Rutherford, for this wonderful saying. He who is but sinking and crieth to Christ is not drowned as yet. Unbelief is no respecter of persons, we have already said. But I am immensely pleased to find that neither is Christ. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all, unto all that call upon Him. How graciously He has said, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. How many others have called upon Him in the day of their trouble, and He delivered them. You live with some of them. You know some of them. Peruse your bookshelves. There are men and women, boys and girls there, who have been saved by this Jesus. Browse the Bible at least. He saved Mark, and Mark has brought you a word today. He comes, the herald of a noisy world, the poet would say. A messenger of grief, perhaps, to thousands, but of joy to some. Little did the chief priests and scribes know the profundity and glory of their scorn. He cannot save himself, yes, but he saved others. Oh, the shocking insight of the blind. The eloquence of the mute. Wiser than his mind is the tongue of the imbecile 
when it's plucked by the sovereign impulse of a kingly God. My dear desperate and lingering listeners, if desperate you are, whether here today, somewhere, sometime else, another day, will you go to Jesus now? Is thy straight horizon dreary? Is thy foolish fancy chill? Change the feet that have grown weary for the wings that never will. This is he, said Mr. Merton, who delivers from the power of darkness. Oh, go to God in the name of Christ. There is no way of escape until he pluck you out by main force. Dear children, Dear children, here this morning, hear us, though we be old to you. You need to be saved. When the darkness is thick about my own soul, and when my body strangles my peace, when doubts leave me torn and weary, I would be done with it all and fly away to heaven. Except I can't be sure you will follow me there. Why not? Why not? Jesus has saved others. Will you go to Him? Will you go with your Christian parents to the New Jerusalem? My dear friends and my dear listeners and precious children, He saved others. Yes, He did. Why not you? Yes, He 